0: Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And on tonight's program, you'll hear everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All of that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues and reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis. Welcome to... This program, which has been pre-recorded for airing first on Wednesday evening, September 23rd, 2015 on americaswebradio.com. And first up on tonight's program, eating healthy foods may lower the risk of depression. In my practice, I often get this question, doctor, is there a diet That I should follow that will help me feel better in terms of my depression or anxiety for that matter. And it's been well known for quite some time now that if you do pay attention to healthy eating, that will not only pay benefits for you physically, but mentally and emotionally as well. You've heard the old saying, garbage in, garbage out. Well, the converse of that follows. If you eat better, you definitely are going to feel better. But what constitutes a diet for your mood or for your mental functioning? Well, there's a lot of information that's already out there on this issue. Uh, Eating certain foods has been associated with uh, decreased depression. Eating fish, for example. Fish is brain food. And uh, it's high in omega fatty acids, which we know are good for the brain because uh, they are part of the elements that make up brain cell membranes and uh, helps with intercellular communication. <clears throat> and don't sell omega-3 fatty acids short just because there's a litany of negative studies of their benefits. Okay, fine. So it doesn't mitigate or prevent the symptoms of Alzheimer's. That was an overreach to think it would, if you ask me. And apparently, it doesn't help prevent heart disease or treat heart disease. I think that may be an artifact of how they did the research. There was some early research that shows it will decrease the worst part of your LDL cholesterol, your bad cholesterol. And then... Uh, there's the uh, research that shows the countries that eat the most fish per capita have the lowest rates of bipolar depression per capita. That can't be a coincidence. And <clears throat> there have been some other studies that I've talked about fairly recently on this program in terms of diets that help promote brain health. Uh, they are rich in things like nuts and fish and lean meats and lots of leafy green vegetables and fruits, all of which are high in healthy antioxidants that your brain likes, Um, nuts like walnuts. So here comes this new study that's basically going to confirm a lot of what we know, but perhaps, uh, as we'll see, give us a little more specifics. Following a diet rich in produce... And low in processed meats, even if you don't do it perfectly, may be helpful in preventing depression, according to this large new study. So right off the bat, they're focusing on the way we shop for groceries. Do we go to the produce aisle and buy the the fresh fruits and fresh vegetables? Or are we just picking up processed meats? Now, to lower the risk of depression, people can eat everything, but everything in moderation, as long as they try to eat lots of vegetables, fruits, nuts, and fish, and avoid fast food and processed meats. Now, at the start of this study, researchers asked 15,000 Spanish university graduates who had never had depression what they normally ate. They then asked them again ten years later. I like the ten-year follow-up. The longer you look at a population, uh, the better you can determine the effect of whatever changes you're trying to track. So the researchers looked at how closely the participants' everyday diets adhered to three healthy diet patterns that involved consuming high amounts of fruits, vegetables, legumes nuts and fish, and avoiding processed meats. These principles are part of the Mediterranean diet and other healthy diets. Well, after eight and a half years, 1,550 people in the study reported being diagnosed with depression or otherwise needing to be on antidepressant drugs. The researchers found that the people in the study who stuck to the healthy patterns to a moderate or high extent had a lower risk of depression than those who did not follow these diets at all or who adhered to them to a low degree. For example, the risk of depression over the study period for the people who moderately adhered to the Mediterranean diet was about 25 to 30 percent lower than those who did not adhere to the diet at all, or who adhered to it to a very small extent only. Now, this article about this research does not specifically state or quantify what constitutes low, moderate, or high adherence to the diet, and we'll get to that point in a moment. But what they found was that even a moderate adherence to these healthy dietary patterns was associated with an important reduction in the risk of developing depression. Moreover, the researchers saw no extra benefit for depression risk when the participants followed the diets very closely compared with moderate adherence. So what they're saying is even if you followed it to the letter, you didn't gain any extra benefit over and above those who followed it to a moderate degree. <clears throat> the main uh, reason to emphasize that is that when you talk about research into these different diets, and there are so many now, and if you want to be healthy, eat this diet, you know, eat this diet to avoid heart disease, this diet to avoid Alzheimer's, now we have the diet to avoid depression, <clears throat> most people when you're confronted with these diets are like, okay, that's great, I'm willing to try to do something to help myself, but do I have to stay to that all the time? I like the fact that the message from this research about this diet is that, you know what, you don't have to follow it exactly all the time. But as long as you follow it most of the time, then you're going to get the benefit of it. Now, they the researchers are not sure what may explain the link between these dietary patterns and people's risk of depression. However, one potential mechanism is that people who follow these patterns may have a lower risk of depression because they get adequate levels of some micronutrients, perhaps B vitamins, folate, or zinc, all of which are essential for brain health and all of which are found in abundance in a lot of the foods on this diet, especially the fresh produce. Conversely, the people who don't follow these patterns may have a higher risk of depression because of their nutrient deficits. Now previous research published back in 2006 and 2009 had also showed a link between following a Mediterranean diet and a lower risk of depression. The Mediterranean diet especially includes uh, olive oil and <clears throat> lots of fresh vegetables and lean meats. Now, this study was published on September 16th in the journal uh, BMC Medicine. Uh, so if you're interested to learn more uh, about the specifics of what constitutes low to moderate to high adherence to this diet and see the differences in benefit from these different levels of adherence to it, you can perhaps look that up. The uh, study was, the study author was Almudena Sanchez viegas of the University of Las Palmas de Gran Canaria and, uh, Again, nice to hear that there is a diet that may help with depression, but you don't have to stick to it every single day, every single meal. So to sum up, it's lots of vegetables, fruits, nuts, and fish. Avoid fast food and processed meats. There you go. Um, But for those of you who just don't want to or can't stick to something all the time, It's good to know that as long as you don't cheat very often, you'll still get the benefit. Again, about a 25 to 30% reduction in the risk of depression. Now here's another study touting the benefits of eating more fish to a lower risk of depression. Okay, it says people who eat a lot of fish may have a slightly lower risk of depression according to a new analysis of previous studies. Uh, so unlike the study we just talked about, this one is <clears throat> combining the analysis of uh, multiple other research studies. And in their analysis, researchers looked at 26 studies that involved a total of over 150,000 people, and they examined the relationship between depression, depression, and the consumption of fish. Ten of the studies were conducted in Europe, and seven were done in North America, with the remaining ones conducted in Asia, Oceania, and South America. Well, let's take our first commercial break here before we get into the findings of this study. Um, Perhaps you're already getting hungry from all this talk about food. Uh, Hopefully, because it's healthy food, uh, that's going to stimulate some appetite and some menu choices. In any case, we'll be right back with more on this fish depression study and other mental health-related news. After this break, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
1: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com.
3: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about how eating more fish is linked to a lower risk of depression, certainly not at all a new idea, just the latest study, and analysis on the subject, which appears in the September 10 edition of the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. When the researchers analyzed the studies conducted in Europe, they found that the people who consumed the most fish had a 17% lower risk of depression than those who ate the least amount of fish. Now, what I told you about in the first segment of the show was the well-known correlation between fish consumption in the population and bipolar depression in particular. Uh, But this study apparently does not specifically differentiate that I'm aware of between bipolar or just ordinary unipolar depression. However, it does find that higher fish consumption may be beneficial in the primary prevention of depression. What does primary prevention mean? Well, primary prevention is just doing something proactively to prevent something from happening in the first place. Now, when the researchers analyzed all the data by gender, they found that the men who ate the most fish had a 20% lower risk of depression than, than those who ate the least amount of fish. In women who ate the most fish, their risk of depression was reduced by 16 percent compared to the women who ate the least fish. Although the associations between high fish consumption and lower depression risk were found for the studies conducted in Europe, they were not found for the studies conducted in the other continents this might be because a smaller number of participants cannot reach statistical significance easily because the studies included in the analysis were observational. Uh, the researchers did not, for example, ask people to start eating more fish and then measure the effects. A cause and relationship, a cause and effect relationship between fish consumption and the risk of depression could not be established. However, the correlation is quite strong. Moreover, the researchers did not have information about the types of fish the people in the studies ate. And they say that more research is needed to see if the association between depression risk and fish consumption varies according to the type of fish consumed. It is not clear why eating more fish may lower the risk of depression, according to the article, but they state that there are several mechanisms that could be at work in the link. For example, like we were talking about before, the article says previous research has suggested that omega-3 fatty acids in fish could alter the structure of brain cell membranes. It could also be that other fatty acids in the fish modify the activity of the neurotransmitters dopamine and serotonin which are thought to be involved in depression. But it could also be that people who eat more fish are generally healthier. Perhaps high fish consumption is also related to a healthier diet in general and better nutritional status which could contribute to the lower risk of depression. Well, I think all of those are quite likely impossible. I'm not sure that there's much evidence to support the assertion that the fatty acids in the fish could modify the activity of neurotransmitters. Uh, I think the evidence that the omega-3 fatty acids could... Uh, improve intercellular communication by um, altering in a positive way the structure of brain cell membranes is uh, stronger. Well, since we're talking about diet and depression by way of preventing it, let's continue tonight's program with a study about a way to predict treatment response. Um, One of the most irksome problems that clinicians have in terms of trying to treat people with depression is not knowing in advance what will work. And you have this basically somewhat educated trial and error in terms of trying different medications and in some cases even different psychotherapies. Uh, believe it or not, there's been some research in, that uses brain imaging to try to determine uh, better who might respond to which type of type of psychotherapy or not, <clears throat> and they had some interesting findings too. But uh, this study here states uh, that treating depressed individuals and figuring out who will and won't respond to antidepressants is mostly trial and error, much to the frustration of patients and the healthcare providers who treat them, yours truly included. But a National Institutes of Health funded study conducted by Vanderbilt's Center for Cognitive Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry may shed some light on predicting the response of a group of depressed individuals age 60 and older. The study, which will include both men and women, who are currently depressed and symptomatic, will use magnetic resonance imaging to examine the relationship between how different parts of the brain communicate and how these individuals respond to antidepressants. The findings may someday help predict how individuals respond to treatment with an antidepressant. This would be a very personalized approach, trying to understand why some people may respond to an antidepressant, medication, and why others won't, looking at differences in how different brain regions communicate in these individuals. Statistics show about 5-10% to 10% of the population over the age of 60 suffers from depression. The incidence is much higher in the physically ill and in nursing homes where about 40 to 50% of residents are believed to suffer from depression. Depression is also more common in women than men, 60% versus 40%, and it's often under-recognized and untreated in the African-American community, probably because of socioeconomic issues such as access to care, perhaps their sociocultural Uh, issues and biases as well. Past research suggests that vascular disease such as high blood pressure or heart disease may contribute to depression in older adults and also older adults with depression more frequently have issues with memory and cognition. Although memory issues may improve with successful antidepressant treatment, In other words, if you successfully treat the depression, uh, the memory may get better. In some cases, these problems may worsen over time. Now, the study was to be divided into two eight-week sessions. During the first session, the depressed individuals will receive either an antidepressant drug or an inert placebo drug. And after eight weeks, those doing well will switch back to just routine clinical care while those who did not improve will start a different antidepressant for another 8 weeks. Researchers will monitor individuals very carefully during the study to make sure people aren't getting worse and hope to see improvement in most participants over the two 8-week periods. The study seeks those who are suffering from depression whether or not they are currently being treated. Depression in older adults is often linked to stress, and ultimately stress breeds depression. And here is where memory issues get involved again. When people feel their memory isn't as good as it was, it causes stress and can lead to depression. Other warning signs of depression include being less active, withdrawing from friends and family, fatigue, lack of motivation, and tearfulness. Thoughts of death can also be common. You don't have to be sad to be diagnosed with depression. That's a very common symptom, but surprisingly, it's not always present. Depression may initially present itself with a sad, low mood or a lack of enjoyment and lack of interest in the world, and when people withdraw and feel like nothing brings them pleasure. Vanderbilt will be enrolling up to 130 individuals over the next five years. The investigators will be using the MRI scanner to show the structure of the brain and any vascular issues. And also to examine how different parts of the brain communicate with each other. Now this information may eventually give investigators clues as to which individuals will respond better to medication. And if their theories are correct, the next step would be to develop automated ways of determining what treatment would be the best for each individual. Now, what can be done now about the trouble of finding the right medications? Well, genetics. Um, so first, before we even get into genetic testing, if you have any blood relatives at all who have ever taken any antidepressants for depression with any degree of success, those drugs are the first things you should try if you haven't tried them already. Likewise, if any of your blood relatives have taken an antidepressant medication and it was a disaster, like, say, very severe side effects or allergies, then you should avoid those drugs like poison. The genetic tests may be a help some of the time. They're far from being a Rosetta Stone, saying, okay, this is what you give that patient, and they'll feel better. Uh, no, The results are mixed. Sometimes the genetic tests that uh, tout screening people for which antidepressants may work better or not give us very helpful information. Other times, no helpful information at all. Um, and uh, while it's certainly better than having none of these tests at all, it's a long way from being able to streamline the process of trial and error. I find that a family history of medication response is the most reliable thing. All right, we'll take another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health related news. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. It takes many hands to build a healthy life. Recovery from mental and substance use disorders
1: is possible with the support of my community. Join the voices for recovery.
0: Visible, vocal,
4: valuable. For confidential information on mental and substance use disorders, including prevention and treatment referral for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-4357. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol.
3: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay giving you all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's program, what if you had a wirelessly powered implant in your brain that could treat depression? Sound far-fetched? Sound like the stuff of science fiction? Well, it may be on the way. A wirelessly powered implant the size of a grain of rice can electrically stimulate the brains of mice as the rodents do what they please. The new gadget could help scientists better understand and treat mental health disorders such as depression, according to a new study. The human brain is the most powerful computer known and extraordinary assembly of living electrical circuits. To gain greater understanding of how the human brain works, and how to fix any problems with it. Neuroscientists would like to electrically stimulate the brains of simpler animals as they scurry around, carry out tasks, and respond to their surroundings. Tiny, untethered, brain-stimulating devices would permit animals to move, behave, and react freely during experiments. However, batteries are too heavy and bulky to fit into such small gizmos. Instead, these inventions could be wirelessly powered using magnetic induction, wherein one coil of wire can transmit energy to another coil using magnetic fields. Wireless neural stimulation in mice has been demonstrated many times before, and in many of these systems, the mice could freely move over a large area. However, previous wireless brain-stimulating devices were limited by their power harvesting components. If these parts were small, power was lost if the animals moved away from the spot where the energy was focused, which limited how far the animals could roam. On the other hand, if these parts were large, They were typically too big to be implanted. Other labs either used bulky devices mounted on the skulls of mice or used complex arrays of coils paired with sensors to locate the mice and deliver power. Now the researchers have created implantable, wirelessly powered, brain-stimulating devices by essentially using the mouse's body to help collect energy. Surprisingly, it works. Engineers tend to think of complex solutions, but sometimes if they back off a bit and think out of the box, they might be able to come up with some crazy but workable solutions that are simpler. The roughly cylindrical device is about two millimeters wide, three millimeters long, and twenty millimeters in weight, making it about 100 times smaller and lighter than previous devices. <clears throat> they compare the size with a grain of rice of a slightly thicker sort. The bodies of the mice are not used to absorb energy. Rather, the mouse bodies interact with surrounding magnetic fields, helping focus energy like a lens from the transmitter to the receiver in the implant. About one thousandth of the energy transmitted at the mice gets absorbed by the devices, an efficiency comparable to previous systems. They achieved these efficiencies, however, without limiting the area of coverage or requiring large head-mounted antennae. The scientists could power the implant as the mice roamed across a 6.3-inch wide or 16-centimeter chamber ...lined with a magnetic lattice. The device was implanted in a region of the mouse brain... ...known as the infralimbic cortex... ...which is implicated in animal models of depression and anxiety. Researchers hope this will open the door to a range of new experiments... ...to better understand and treat mental health disorders such as depression. In addition... Since there is no wire and no protruding structure coming out of the animals, it will allow experiments with multiple animals in the same space to better understand social interaction in the treatment of chronic pain and mental disorders, for example. The scientists detailed their findings online on August 4th in the journal Physical Review Applied. Well, to be sure, at the moment, this is still the stuff of science fiction. If you consider how unbelievably far away this is from an application in a human, um, it will probably, I guess, take decades before they even get ready to test this in a primate. And who knows if it will ever be tested in humans, but you never know. Um, Wouldn't it be something, though, if... You could implant a very small device uh, that would have far less risk of adverse side effects on other brain areas that would stimulate a very specific narrow part of the brain that uh, would help relieve symptoms of depression and who knows, maybe other mental disorders. And instead of having to implant a uh, device with leads from a battery in the chest or the neck like we do with vagal nerve stimulators, uh, and, and other stimulating devices now that it could be powered wirelessly. Um, you know, they've advanced this technology quite a bit. Um, it still has quite a ways to go. It's not clear whether this will wind up in human beings in, uh, in my lifetime or, or maybe yours, but maybe your children's, certainly your grandchildren's, I would say. All right, now... As I recall, on a previous show, probably the last one, uh, I talked a lot about workplace issues, and I found yet another article. So this week we have another stress in the workplace update. And uh, <clears throat> this study's pretty serious, I'll say. Um, talk about the ultimate consequence of stress. Uh, workplace bullying may increase the risk of suicidal thoughts, Workers who are victims of bullying on the job may become more likely to contemplate suicide than people who don't experience a hostile office environment. This, according to a Norwegian study, researchers surveyed a nationally represented sample of roughly 1,850 workers and followed them from five years, from 2005 to 2010. While less than 5% of participants reported thoughts of suicide during the study period, they were about twice as likely to do so after being victims of workplace bullying. The authors feel that their study adds to the understanding of how bullying is related to thoughts about suicide by showing that the perception of being bullied at work actually is a precursor of suicidal thinking and not a consequence. At least 800,000 people worldwide take their own lives each year, making suicide a leading cause of death. Uh, This research was published in a recent issue of the American Journal of Public Health. Although psychiatric disorders are involved in the majority of suicide attempts, most people with mental health disorders don't take their own lives. The relationship between bullying and suicidal thoughts is something of a chicken-and-egg problem. It's difficult to determine which comes first. In an effort to solve this riddle, researchers surveyed workers in 2005, 2007, and 2010 asking about their work environment and mental health researchers defined three main characteristics of workplace bullying. An employee must be the target of systematic unwanted social behavior. The exposure must occur over a prolonged period of time, often with increasing frequency and intensity, and targets feel they can't escape the situation or stop unwanted treatment. Over the course of the study, The average proportion of workers reporting bullying ranged from 4.2% to 4.6%, while the prevalence of suicidal thoughts varied from 3.9% to 4.9%. There were no major differences in reports of bullying or suicidal thoughts based on workers' gender or age. While people who reported bullying early in the study were more likely to later report suicidal thoughts, the reverse didn't prove true. Workers who said they had contemplated suicide at the beginning of the study were no more likely to later report bullying than participants who had never considered killing themselves. One limitation of the study is its reliance on participants to accurately recall and report any exposure to bullying or thoughts of suicide. There are probably some workers who are more likely to consider suicide due to specific predispositions, whereas others are more likely to consider suicide due to their recent exposure to bullying. With prolonged exposure to bullying and other forms of distress, changes in the brain can occur. The brain can become flooded with stress hormones, uh, as a group called the glucocorticoids, including cortisol, and these reduce the capacity for clear, rational thinking. For at least some people, workplace bullying might be a tipping point toward considering suicide that mental health professionals may overlook, focusing instead on family or financial problems. The study findings suggest that the office problems merit a more serious look. Being bullied is one cause of thinking about taking one's life. Being bullied led to suicidal suicidal ideation or thinking, and not the opposite. And that's important for that reason. <clears throat> well, so there you have it, a detailed look at workplace bullying um, and Suicidal ideation. Now, it's important to note that they just studied people who were thinking about suicide because they were so emotionally distraught. Uh, it doesn't, in fact, say that anyone actually committed suicide. And uh, again, this was published online in the American Journal of Public Health, the September 17th issue, if you're interested to look at that further. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. When we come back, we'll have some more mental health-related news and updates. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not
1: just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
4: Staying on course without support is tough. With help from family and community, you get valuable support for recovery from a mental or substance use disorder. Join the Voices for Recovery. Visible, vocal, valuable.
3: For confidential information
1: on mental and substance use disorders, including prevention and treatment referral for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
3: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's program, a new breakthrough in what causes autism. Scientists are now one step closer to understanding how Genetic mutations contribute to autism. In a study released on August 6, 2015, in the journal Cell, experts from the um, University of North Carolina School of Medicine discovered how one specific autism-linked gene mutation actually works. This is the first time scientists have observed how a common type of mutation known as a missense mutation, could contribute to autism. Thanks to recent advances in technology, it's now possible to sequence human genomes relatively inexpensively. From these sequencing studies, thousands of mutations have been turning up in hundreds of genes, and this mutation is one of those that are turning up for autism. Specifically, the new finding relates to an enzyme known as UBE3A. Normally, this enzyme is tightly regulated. But researchers discovered that an autism-linked gene mutation disrupts the on-off switch that controls the enzyme. As a result, the enzyme is constantly on. In the body, the role of the enzyme UBE3A is to tag other proteins for destruction. It's sort of like if you have garbage and you want to get rid of it, you can tag it with a flag for somebody to pick it up and throw it out. That's essentially what UBE3A does. The mutation causes the enzyme to tag normal proteins nonstop, which is presumably what leads to autism pathology. To test their hypothesis that this mutation contributes to autism, researchers introduced the gene mutation into the brains of mice. The results, compared to control mice, the genetically altered mice, showed the same type of brain changes seen in individuals with autism. Not only was this hyperactivating mutation identified in individuals with autism, when put into a mouse model, it gave a brain pathology that looked like autism. It's important to note that this finding is only one piece of a larger puzzle. Researchers have identified about 1,000 genes related to autism, each of which may play a part in the disorder, which affects 1 in 68 children in the United States. Part of the reason the genetics of the disorder are so complex is that autism itself is complex. Sometimes we abbreviate it as someone has autism, but clinically it's known as autism spectrum disorder. No two kids look completely alike, and that probably relates to the fact that there are literally going to be hundreds of different genes that can get you the core symptoms And when you hit certain genes, you'll get some of the associated symptoms. Well, this is indeed a breakthrough and hopefully just the beginning of further research that will lead to uh, more refined knowledge about the kinds of things that go wrong in the brain that result in autism symptoms and give the parents and families of children and also grown adults who have autism symptoms, uh, at least some peace of mind uh, and perhaps some hope that treatments, if not a cure, could someday be found. And hopefully, this will also start to lay to rest the bizarre conspiracy theor- uh theories about things that cause autism um, and especially the. Um, Frankly, outright delusional anti-vaxxers, uh, who are still convinced after reams of research refuting the claim that, uh, childhood vaccines cause autism. Um, <clears throat> if you didn't already know, this has been de- discredited many years ago, uh, because the scientists who published the paper first reporting this association, uh, was exposed as a fraud. And um, his research completely debunked. There is absolutely nothing to that assertion whatsoever. Um, but as far as this genetic work, it's very, very preliminary. This is painstaking work that takes years. And while it is true that you can sequence the human genome faster and less expensively now, uh, if you've got many thousands of genes that create or contribute to the pathology of autism, um, it's still going to take quite a while to tease all these things apart, but um, still an important breakthrough. Now, let's move on to another uh, typically child and adolescent psychiatric issue, and that is ADHD. Now, that stands for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Again, that is the current proper terminology that The term ADD is outdated and is no longer considered official uh, psychiatric terminology. It's all ADHD, and then you specify inattentive-only type or hyperactive-impulsive type or combined type, which includes features of both. And it turns out that there are differences in the brain structure and also memory that suggest adolescents may not grow out of ADHD when they get older. Um, <clears throat> one of the many myths about ADHD is that, well, this is something only kids have, and uh, we used to think that somehow when you pass through adolescence, you magically grow out of it. Um, what nonsense is that? I mean, that's just so not true whatsoever. In fact, the vast majority of children and adolescents with ADHD We'll have those symptoms persist on into adulthood. What does change as these kids move through adolescence is if they have the hyperactivity to begin with and you know not all kids with ADHD do the hyperactivity tends to calm down. That tends to burn out a little bit. Uh, but the inattentiveness, the attention deficit part, that tends to persist on into adulthood. Um, the changes, though, even in the hyperactivity can be subtle. So, for example, the child who is unable to sit still in class and constantly interrupts the teacher and other students grows up to be an adult who's fidgety and restless and uh, doesn't like sitting still in the same place as always getting up from their desk and moving around and uh, going from one task to another and so on. Well, so let's see what these scientists found. Young adults diagnosed with ADHD in adolescence show differences in brain structure and perform poorly in memory tests compared to their peers. According to new research, the findings were published in the journal European Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Aspects of ADHD may persist into adulthood, even when current diagnostic criteria fail to identify the disorder. ADHD is characterized by short attention span, restlessness, and impulsivity, usually first diagnosed in childhood or adolescence. Estimates suggest that more than three in every 100 boys and just under one in every 100 girls has ADHD. Less is known about the extent to which the disorder persists into adulthood, with estimates suggesting that between 10 to 50% of children still have ADHD in adulthood. Diagnosis in adulthood is currently reliant on meeting symptom checklists. Some have speculated that as the brain develops in adulthood, children may grow out of ADHD, but until now there has been little rigorous evidence to support this. Researchers followed up on 49 adolescents diagnosed with ADHD at age 16, to look at their brain structure and memory function in young adulthood between 20 to 24-year-olds, and they compare them with a control group of 34 young adults. The results showed that the group diagnosed in adolescence still had problems in terms of reduced brain volume and poor memory function, irrespective of whether or not they still met diagnostic checklist criteria for ADHD. By analyzing Structural Magnetic Resonance Imaging brain scans and comparing them to the controls, researchers found that the adolescents with ADHD had reduced gray matter in a region deep within the brain known as the caudate nucleus, a key brain region that integrates information across different parts of the brain and supports important cognitive functions including memory. To investigate whether or not these gray matter deficits were important, researchers did a functional MRI experiment measuring brain activity while 21 of the subjects with ADHD and 23 of the controls did a test of working memory while in the scanner. A third of those with ADHD failed the test compared to less than one in 20 in the control group. Even among the adolescent ADHD sample who passed the test, scores were average 6 percentage points lower than the controls. Poor memory seemed to relate to a lack of responsiveness in activity of that caudate nucleus region. In the controls, when the memory questions became more difficult, that area of the brain became more active, whereas in the ADHD group, it did not. So there were no differences in brain structure or memory test scores between the young adults previously diagnosed with ADHD and those who still met the diagnostic criteria. <clears throat> so it goes to show that there are brain regions that are involved in information processing and memory that don't work as well in people who have ADHD um, and that these deficits can persist on into adulthood. Uh, I think it's also more important evidence to refute those who would claim that ADHD is not a real brain disorder, that is just some made-up construct so that uh, parents can relieve themselves of responsibility for faulty parenting, um, schools absolve themselves of responsibility for not uh, preparing students uh, adequately, and uh, doctors and pharmaceutical companies can drug kids up. This is you know, also more conspiracy theory type stuff, a la the anti-vaxxers. Um, research like this proves that there are actual physiological changes in the brain in ADHD and uh, that the deficits that the disease causes, uh, such as memory in this study, are real. Well, that's going to have to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you, and I hope you have a wonderful stress-free week till the next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening.
3: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.